One of the greatest obstacles to crafting health and wellness is identifying and controlling inflammation. It's at the core of all complex and chronic diseases, and it's the driving mechanism that underlies the most common symptoms that people like you struggle to overcome. Join us as we explore cutting-edge science and research to give you the information and tools you need to create the quality of life you want and deserve. And now, here is the host of Inflammation Nation, Dr. Stephen Noseworthy. Hey guys, welcome back to the Inflammation Nation podcast. Uh, today actually is Thanksgiving Day. I'm recording this fairly early. In fact, I just got back from the gym. Um, and if I sound a little shaky, it's probably because I am. It's it's good to get back into the gym and be able to push things uh, to, not to my limits, but it, it, to be able to push harder and perform better in the gym, especially after having taken almost a year off of training with my shoulder injury and then uh, recovery from the surgery. But anyways, things are, things are looking really good. And I have a tendency like many people who have had an athletic past that when you get back to things that maybe you do things a little bit too quickly. Um, and I'm certainly guilty of that. So again, if I sound a little shaky, it's just because I'm, I'm in that, that hard workout post recovery period. So today we're going to be talking about, um, testing for gluten sensitivity and, talk about this topic of cross-reactivity. And uh, we, we you know, honestly, there's a lot of things to talk about, much as there is with many of the um, many of the different topics that we cover. But I want to start by saying, you know, I, I remember probably about 15 years ago when I was living in the Bradenton in Sarasota area, um, back when we lived in Florida. Well, we still live in Florida technically. But um, I remember listening to the radio one day it was a local Christian station that we were listening to. And one of the DJs was talking about how they were talking about the gluten-free diet. And, and one guy made a point of saying, you know, well, this is just a fad and it's just going to disappear like any other fad. Um, I also remember reading a blog article somewhere along the way by what at the time was a fairly well-known nutritionist, you know, one of those people who had self-published a book that managed to get some kind of notoriety. And and in this article, she blasted the gluten-free fad diet, stating quite emphatically that uh, removing entire food groups like grains was nutritionally dangerous and that gluten contained essential proteins and nutrients that we needed in our diet. And uh, well, first of all, that's simply not true. But, you know, logical fallacies aside, these these statements are no different than the gastroenterologist who tells someone they don't believe in leaky gut. It's just simply a scientifically untenable position. Now, we can forgive the DJ on the basis that he lacked, uh, you know, the scientific background and, and maybe shouldn't even have offered an opinion, especially in the medium of radio, where there's a lot of people who listen and trust them. But, you know, the nutritionist, I mean, come on. Seriously, the, the, we're way past the point where we think or should think that something like wheat or gluten is nutritious and certainly essential or certainly not essential. So anyways, you know, Kathy and I, we have five kids and our, our oldest is my only daughter. Her name is Whitney. And she started working with me when she was 19 years old. And she worked herself from a simple administrative role to, to actually being a key part of my coaching staff after she put herself through a four-year nutrition degree. And that was before she went on to become a licensed nurse. And, you know, she did all that while she was working full-time for me and then raising a family. She's just an, an absolute dynamo. But I remember being appalled in her, it was her first or second year 
um, when she told me that in one of her nutrition classes, they had been given a project where they were supposed to bake a cake and they had to provide a complete nutritional breakdown of what they had made. And when she asked if she could make it with gluten-free grains, she was told absolutely not that, you know, the cake must be made with wheat. And again, the connotation or the implication was that wheat is an essential nutrient. Now we, we can, we can start from a position of saying that something like, and I might get the number wrong, but somewhere around 80% of the standard American diet, the calories come from wheat and dairy. So it's certainly an essential part of the American diet in the sense of that's just what the American diet is based on. But to say that from a physiological standpoint, that wheat or gluten are nutritionally essential is just absolutely incorrect. And, and, and you know, the, despite the combination of rigorous scientific research showing scientifically why wheat can be so bad for so many people, plus the overabundance of anecdotal evidence from real world changes of, of people who testify to the benefits of, benefits of going gluten-free, you know, despite all of that, the medical and the nutritional community is is still in love with gluten. And, you know, I, I might go so far as to say is it's really contributing to a lot of the chronic inflammation and chronic diseases that we have. But let me switch and talk a little about why proper testing for gluten sensitivity is so important from a clinical perspective. Understanding that elimination provocation is still the gold standard for spying out food sensitivities, most people make a couple of basic mistakes when it comes to trying a gluten-free diet. And we'll get to the testing uh, either later in this episode or we'll just split it off and do a second episode about that specifically. But mistake number one, <clears throat> pardon me, is that a lot of people going gluten-free just simply don't give it long enough time. And someone might say, and I've heard this from, from clients, you know, well, I went, I went gluten-free for two weeks and it didn't make any difference. And so I just started eating it again. And I, you know, I think fair enough, right? I'm, I'm willing to admit there are some people who can eat gluten and maybe eat it their entire lives and not suffer any consequences or at least any significant ones. But, you know, are they the exception or are they the rule? You know, some research papers that we have suggest that you might need to go gluten-free for several months to perceive any benefit. And theoretically, that's for two reasons. First is that it takes time for inflammation to reduce, as you've you know, probably learned from some of the other episodes where we've talked about immune responses and inflammation. Right? Typically, it, it, it doesn't happen overnight where just inflammation goes below a threshold where it's promoting a lot of obvious symptomatology. But second, like eating gluten-free is a learned behavior. And it takes time to be really good at it and get to the point where you're not cheating and you're not getting unintentionally exposed, say, like at a restaurant or maybe at a family get-together. Now, certainly there are people who can literally just flip a switch and, and say, I'm going gluten-free, and they do it immediately. And they do a really good job of it. But that's, again, that that's the exception. That's not the rule. Most of us, most people going gluten-free have to learn how to do it properly. Um, in fact, I, I recently had a discussion with a client of mine who's, I actually couldn't believe this once she told me, um, they had a family get together and her mother-in-law was responsible for bringing something. I can't remember what the dish was, but um, she asked her mother-in-law, uh, did you make that gluten-free? And her mother-in-law said yes. And, and turned out that she absolutely lied to her that something, this thing that she had made for the family gathering, she said it was gluten-free when in fact it was not. And, and it caused, caused all sorts of issues for her 
and for one of their children who was gluten sensitive. And so we, we have buy-in and we don't have buy-in. There's, you know, just a real diversity of opinion. And this is where we get to look at the abundance of anecdotal evidence. And I understand anecdotal evidence is not the same as science, but, um, and forgive me, I don't remember who I heard this from, but um, so I heard somebody say, and he's, uh, he's an MD in the carnivore world, and his name is escaping me right now. Uh, he said, at some point, when you have enough anecdotal evidence, it becomes anecdata right? It's just a preponderance of evidence, even though it may not have been scientifically tested with a lot of rigor, for example. But we have at least one research paper right now, and uh, we use this sometimes in, in the thyroid seminars that we teach to doctors uh, about Hashimoto's disease. But we have at least one paper that suggests that for some people with Hashimoto's, that a single exposure to gluten can trigger an inflammatory response in the thyroid gland itself, which can last for months. And so if you're gluten-free for only a few weeks, but the inflammation lasts for months, you're not going to be able to detect the benefit unless you stick to it for long enough to have the inflammation subside so that you can actually start to notice the benefit. Now, here's a caution. One paper is not enough to construct a full clinical paradigm, but it's a clue. And you put that together with a whole bunch of other things, some things from additional research, but a lot perhaps from what we observe with real people in clinical practice. And this is the anecdata that we're talking about. And that's not just my opinion. I can get together in a, in a seminar where maybe I've got 50 or 60 docs in, in the class for the weekend. And I might start, when we talk about gluten, I might make a statement, something like, you know, hey, who here believes gluten is the devil? And I would say at this point, probably 80% of the class puts their hands up just because we've seen it, right? We're the people in the trenches that are working with people who have chronic inflammatory issues, Hashimoto's or otherwise, and we see the difference that going gluten-free makes. And, and whether that's done based on testing or just trial and error, that's a different issue. And again, we'll get to the testing eventually. Um, but, you know, even like I said that you can't take one paper and construct a full clinical paradigm, and that's true. But even beyond that, like large population level studies don't always apply to individual people. And so maybe we have a whole bunch of epidemiological studies that involved a whole bunch of different people, like high numbers of people. And whatever conclusions come out of those papers can tell us about trends. They can tell us about averages, maybe predispositions. But we can't take whatever the conclusion is about those papers and apply it to each individual person who eats gluten, for example, or, or what the impact of a gluten-free diet will be. And so we can't conclude, for example, that everyone who eats gluten is going to have an inflamed thyroid for months at a time. It doesn't work like that, but it also works the opposite direction, that if a lot of research says, well, this isn't a problem, that doesn't necessarily mean that it isn't a problem for an individual person. And this is, I think, a point that a lot of people who are out there reading research who don't have a a really deep background in that, not saying that I do, you know, let me just be absolutely clear. I certainly have done classes on statistics and all that kind of stuff, but I, I am not a researcher per se. No, I just happen to know researchers. And so I've learned a lot about how to read research and how to apply that in clinical practice, kind of the, the do's and the don'ts and where you can run into trouble. So I might have a little bit more insight than the average person, but let me be clear. I'm not a researcher myself. So Mistake number one when it comes to things like going gluten-free is, number one, you just don't do it long enough. Mistake number two is that sometimes people need to remove gluten 
or remove more than just gluten from their diet to get better. So let's say that somebody is reacting to both gluten and dairy proteins and they remove just the gluten but not the dairy. And so while they're trying to figure out whether or not their gluten sensitivity um, or if they are gluten sensitive, they're still reacting to the dairy that they're still eating and they end up falsely concluding that they're not gluten sensitive because going gluten free didn't help. And let's just assume that they did it correctly. Mistake number three is not being aware of or accounting for this thing called gluten cross-reactivity. Now, there's a handful of foods that essentially trick the immune system into thinking that you're still eating gluten when in fact you're not. And this is called cross-reactivity or molecular mimicry, and it's caused by two food proteins sharing identical amino acid sequences um, in such a way that the immune system responds to both of them since one likes, looks like the other at a molecular level. And that's why we call it molecular mimicry or cross-reactivity is because, again, two things look alike at the molecular level because of their amino acid sequences in their protein structures. And this is very well documented in research. And I've mentioned this in, in other contexts. And, and the problem here, as it relates to gluten sensitivity, is that there are a lot of, a lot of the alternative grains being used in gluten-free products are cross-reactive with gluten, or I should say potentially cross-reactive. And so someone goes gluten-free and they start shopping in the gluten-free section in their grocery store only to start eating other foods that looks like gluten to their immune system. So their immune system keeps reacting, even though they might truly be gluten-free, they're still eating things that look like gluten to their immune system. We're talking about things like millet, baker's yeast, corn and corn flour, oats and oat flour, rice flour, and dairy. These are the, the most well-known potentially gluten cross-reactive foods. And so to kind of translate that into something practical, the gluten-free aisle of your grocery store is not necessarily a safe place to be if you're trying to be gluten-free. Not that you won't, not that you're getting exposed to gluten, but you're getting exposed to things that could trick your immune system, making you think that you are eating gluten. Which brings up another mistake that people often make, and that is trusting, like 100% trusting the label that says this product is gluten-free. And one thing that I tell my clients all the time is that gluten-free doesn't necessarily mean free of gluten. It, what that means is that according to FDA labeling laws, a food manufacturer can say something is gluten-free as long as it contains less than 20 parts per million of gluten, which is really small. So it's not truly gluten-free. It's really just, it's almost gluten-free. And the problem is that some people's immune systems are so sensitized that even the smallest exposure can translate into a significant inflammatory response. Case in point, I, I had a husband and wife, both as clients back somewhere around, <clears throat> pardon me, 2012, somewhere around there. And we discovered that she had Hashimoto's. And that's essentially a diagnosis, which in my opinion, really demands that someone goes gluten-free. And, you know, as a good, supportive, loving husband would, he said that, uh, he said to her that he would go on whatever diet she had to be on just to make easy things easier for her because she did the cooking for the family. So not only did she get better, but you know, he lost weight, his blood pressure came down and that that's a side story. But the real story here is that a few months go by and he tells her that the gluten-free desserts that she was making for him were okay but, you know, not the same as her regular baked goods. And she did a lot of baking. So he asked her 
to bake him regular cake or brownies or whatever the case might be. And she did. And, and she switched back to gluten, but only for the things that she was making for him. She stayed gluten-free and she did a really good job of it. Well, a few more months go by and her Hashimoto's flares up and nothing we did with her helped her stabilize, you know, changing her diet, changing her supplements. Um, she had been strictly gluten-free. There was no additional stressors that she was dealing with, nor were there any issues with things like compliance. She was a great client to work with. Then one day she tells me that she, she told me, this is when she told me that she was um, baking her husband's desserts and treats with regular wheat flour. And she told me the story that he came to her and said, you know, hey, hon, can you start doing this for me again? And um, <laughs> what I had her do, I had her just just as a test. I, I said, why don't you wear gloves while you're making like his cake? Um, wear a face mask the next time that you bake. And she did. And lo and behold, she starts getting better again. So you see for her, her immune system was so sensitive to gluten that simply touching it and breathing it, breathing in the flour dust as she was making it was enough to ignite her immune system. And that's why products labeled gluten-free, which have, you know, small amounts or can have small amounts of gluten in them are not necessarily safe. And so I'll say it again, the gluten-free label doesn't mean free of gluten. It just means that there's just a little teeny tiny amount, which a lot of people are going to be okay with, but some are going to not be. And so they're not necessarily safe, either because they contain small amounts of gluten, where uh, in combination with someone who's so reactive that even a smidgen of gluten can be a problem, or perhaps in gluten-free products, there are cross-reactive grains or other foods that are used in these supposedly gluten-free products. So going simply going gluten-free is, is fraught with problems and challenges, whether that is simply not being good at it, being accidentally exposed in situations where you don't have control over what's going into the foods, um, maybe not removing other foods that you're still reacting to. Dairy is an example, but it can be anything. Or maybe you're unwittingly eating cross-reactive alternative grains and foods, and you don't know that you're cross-reacting. Or maybe you're eating things that are labeled as gluten-free, but you have such a high degree of sensitivity that even a trace amount might be an issue. So this is a case where testing can be very helpful. But know this, that consumption of wheat and other gluten-containing grains is, is so ingrained in our culture, pun intended, it's so ingrained in our culture and our lifestyles that sometimes it can become psychologically different to do something like going gluten-free. And if you're approaching it from the belief that wheat and grains in general are a necessary part of the human diet, which they are not, sometimes it's really hard to let go of that. In fact, I, I remember a young guy I worked with briefly a few years ago. We did run formal gluten sensitivity testing and I, you know, I showed him the results and, and he had what we call a polyreactive or a multiple positive. It wasn't just one thing he was reacting to, it was multiple. And that will become clear when we actually talk about the testing probably in the next episode. But I showed him his test results and, and I laid out how his reactions to gluten in his diet were connected to his health issue. And when I said he needed to go gluten-free to get better, his answer to me was like, he was shocked. He's like, but doc, I'm Italian. And he ultimately he ultimately dropped out of care with me because he just, he couldn't overcome the mental hurdle 
and I know it, listen, it can be hard. Um, but to, to be honest, this is all a mind game or a lot of it is a mind game, right? Um, another recent client of mine who's of Indian heritage has family members who are convinced that animal protein is the devil and the only way to be healthy is to be vegan and eat a grain and legume based diet. And I've had clients of different religious backgrounds who connect their diet to their faith. And so whether it's a lack of information or the tethers of family tradition or culture, ethnicity or religion, there are all manner of reasons why someone might have a lot of difficulty going gluten free. But for some people, it's honestly the single most important dietary change that they can make. So let's leave testing for the next episode. I'm going to close here at about 20 minutes or so. And again, today's Thanksgiving Day, and I, I put out just a, a brief message, but I really want to extend my heartfelt gratitude to all of you who listen and support the podcast. And if I could ask you again to make sure that you follow us on whatever podcast platform you're using, uh, even rate and comment and uh, give us a, a thumbs up or whatever it is that your little podcast app allows you to do because by doing that, you can help other people find the information that they need. So I'll leave it there for now. Until next time, we'll come back and we'll talk about gluten testing. All right, take care.